Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, the guys will continue on in their series walking through the book of Deuteronomy. We do again want to point you to our Theopolis app, which Dr. Lightheart will do here in just a second as well. And just know that I do have a link down there in the show notes for you to have easy access to that app website. You'll want to set up an account there, either free or paid, and then use that to get onto the app on your phone or tablet. We are putting new content onto that app every week, including eBooks, Theopolis courses and conferences, and much more. Do take a look down there in the show notes as well to our upcoming events. Paul Buckley and I will be in Chicago this weekend teaching our course on how to sing the Psalms. Peter Lightheart has an upcoming class here in Birmingham in a couple of weeks on the death and resurrection of David, looking at the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. And of course, in the month of July, we have our annual Theopolitan Ministry Conference. The theme for the conference this year is love. And during that week, we will also have our Trinity Feast, where we will celebrate 10 years of Theopolis. And again, all of those events are linked down there in the show notes. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation over these passages. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeff Myers discussing Deuteronomy 4 and 5. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes, as usual, is recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing everything out for you, our listening audience. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We're glad to have you listening to our podcast. I want to put in a plug for our app. Once again, we released a new Theopolis app several weeks ago, uh, and it's a great place for you to find the podcast series organized as series. You can find conferences. uh, You can find old material that uh, Jim, old lectures of James Jordan. Uh, You can find old Biblical Horizons conferences. Uh, We have a growing number of ebooks on their collections of blog posts that I've written over the years or essays that I've written that are hard to find. Those will be found on the app. Uh, and the podcast is available on the app, as I said, uh, and is organized according to topic. So it's it makes it easier to find the specific podcast you're looking for if you do it through the app. So I encourage you to take a look at that. There is a, a way to uh, access some of the material for free, uh, but if you pay $7 a month, you get past a paywall and there's a lot more material there uh, for you to dip into and for you to use. I encourage you to do that. We're toward the beginning of a series in the book of Deuteronomy. We've covered the first, roughly the first four chapters. We're going to be talking mainly about chapter five today. Uh, But I want to start out by talking about the very tail end of chapter four. We didn't quite finish chapter four in the last couple of episodes, even though we devoted two full episodes Uh, to that one chapter, but there was a lot of material and uh, we didn't quite get finished. I want to look at uh, verses 44 to 49 of chapter 4 because that is really the beginning of the next section, even though it's part of chapter 4 in our Bibles. It's really the beginning of the section that continues into chapter 5 that includes the 10 words. One reason for saying that is the way that the um, these verses, chapter 4, verses 44 to 49, uh, recapitulate the beginning of the chapter. Uh, or the beginning of the book, rather. It goes back to the beginning of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy begins with uh, Moses, uh, with the narration, these are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah, Abzit Suf. It talks about Kadesh Barnea. Uh, it talks about the time, uh, timing of his uh, sermons. 
It's the 40th year in the 11th month. This is after he defeated Sihon and Og, the king of Bashan. Many of those elements are repeated at the end of chapter 4. Uh, instead of saying, this is, these are the words, it says, this is the Torah, this is the law which Moses spoke. Uh, and But then it refers to their location across the Jordan, opposite Beth Peor. Uh, that reference to Beth Peor brings up uh, the incident at Beth Peor, which is recorded back in the book of Numbers, uh, the rebellion of Israel and their engagement in idolatry. The opening of the book mentions their rebellion at Kadesh Barnea uh, and talks about the, that as the starting point of their journey to the plains of Moab. This refers to Beth Peor, which is, again it evokes this history of rebellion. Uh, verse 46 mentions Sihon. Verse 47 mentions Og, so it mentions these victories. Uh, so various elements, and, and it has a little bit of uh, description of the surroundings and the geography of the location where they are. So all of the elements that introduce the book, these are the words, this is the law. Uh, they're in the plains of Moab opposite Beth Peor. This is taking place after the defeat of Sion and Og. Uh, there's a uh, the reference to the land that they're inhabiting, that they're, uh, that they're uh, camping in at that point. So beginning in 444, we have something like a resumption of the beginning of the book. And this is kind of a new beginning for, or beginning of a new section of the book. It seems like verses 44 to 49 sort of summarize everything that has gone on in the previous three chapters. Um, there's an introduction, Moses speaking the words, the testimonies and the statutes and ordinances, or the rituals and the judgments, as we've been translating it, uh, following Arnold's commentary. Chapters 1 through 3 narrate the victories over Sihon and Og, and they're mentioned here. Those victories are mentioned. Chapters 1 through 3 talk about the division of the land of Sihon and Og. Those two territories are divided up on in uh, in the uh, three tribes are on the on the east side of the Jordan in the Transjordanian area, and so those victories are mentioned. They were mentioned in chapter three, uh, and then there's so and then there's a division of the land, uh, and we have the, the very last word of chapter four is the word Pisgah, which is the mountain where Moses is going to go. He's going to survey the land from that mountain, even though of course he's not going to enter the land, and that location where Moses is going to die. Uh, or going to disappear at least, is mentioned back at, toward the end of chapter 3. So verses 44 to 49 not only go, take us back to the very beginning of Deuteronomy, but they kind of bring us up to date. They kind of summarize the first three chapters that bring us right up to the point where the chapter 5 is going to introduce the 10 words. It's going to have this retrospective back to Sinai and describe the 10 words being delivered to Israel uh, and Israel's reaction to that. So one thing that we we failed to cover in chapter four last time in the last two episodes uh, is the the short the short discussion of the cities of refuge, which is found in chapter four verses forty one to forty three. Uh, that kind of intrudes into the passage. We've had uh, Moses has been talking about uh, exhorting the people to um, to obedience. Uh, he's just talked about the fact that they are going to fail to obey, and they're going to be expelled from the land. Uh, but when they turn to the Lord and they repent, then they will return to the to the land. That's in the immediate context. And then suddenly verse 41 to 43 um, comes up with this re reference to the cities of refuge. So part of the question is, why are the cities of refuge mentioned here? Uh, what is this little section doing in this? It seems like an interpolation. doesn't really seem to fit. What is this doing here? And especially, it seems to be right at the end of the section, uh, the introductory section of um, of Deuteronomy, you could say the Deuteronomy, the first section of Deuteronomy goes from verse one of chapter one 
to verse 43 of chapter four, which means the very climax is the reference to the cities of refuge. So it's a it's an odd intrusion into the text. So that'd be an initial question that we want to address. What's, what is it doing in this location? Well, I guess on an obvious, obvious level is that what we've had narrated is the uh, defeat of Og and uh, Sihon and the uh, kingdoms to the east of the Jordan River. So there's going to be Levitical cities in the land, in the land proper, west of the Jordan. But now there's a need for these three additional Levitical cities for those tribes that are living on um, the other side of the river. So um, it's, you know, it just kind of assumes uh, the reality of what has happened previously in their conquest and the need for three more cities, which which uh, also legitimates the fact that the uh, this is also part of the promised land for these two and a half tribes. So they're going to be able to settle there and stay there. Uh, and there'll be a, a, a you know, a, what we would call a judicial kind of system in place ready for uh, adjudicating cases of manslaughter in these cities. Yeah, that, that idea, Jeff, if, if I understand you rightly, the, the idea that um, this is referring to victories already um, obtained, you know, land already conquered, and then looking forward to similar conquests um, in the land proper, if, if you like. That seems just to fit in well with the broader um, flow we have in, um, where are we, chapter uh, 231, the, the Lord is saying to Moses, I, um, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Now begin to take possession that you may occupy the land, you know, and and you get later Moses in the next chapter pleading, oh, oh Lord, you've only just begun to show um, your servant your greatness. And and so it does seem very much that that's going on, that they're standing there on conquered territory now um, and cities of refuge will be established there. And then that will be mirrored in, in, in the land proper. Something else that I think might be going on and, and that sort of struck me as interesting is that um moses set apart um that's the kind of word for separation used often in um genesis for instance uh separating light from dark and and land from sea and so forth um and uh also also kind of in in chapter three we've we've got moses talking about how um he has given to the rumidites their land and he has given to the Gadites their territory. And it, it seems that a lot of these verbs that are classically with God as the subject, you know, Israel is the land that I, the Lord, am giving you. And um, the Lord is the one who divides in um, uh, Genesis 1. Seems that some of those verbs are now, Moses is becoming the subject as, as he is now, I guess, to some extent, uh, speaking forth God's mandate o- over the land of Israel and beginning to uh, divide and, and separate out in preparation for it to be uh, filled and subdued and, and all the rest. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, we're going to uh, see this in chapters five and six, that there's a language that's drawn from the creation account, language of the goodness of the land, uh, language of doing well, which is just a verb form of the word good, language about multiplying in the land. So you have this creation language that's associated with the life in the land. 
So the idea that you have Moses kind of acting as a kind of creator figure, as he does in in Exodus, where he's he's the one who receives the receives the revelation for the tabernacle, and then he sets up the tabernacle, and he's dividing out different sections of the tabernacle. There's a kind of creation theme there, so that yeah, it fits nicely with those other creation themes. I want to I want to uh, just another twist on what Jeff said at the beginning. When we looked at chapter three, I su- I suggested chapters three and four. I guess I suggested that we have kind of a a mini preview of what was going to happen in the book of Joshua. So there's a couple of battles that they that they win over Sihon and Og, and then there's a distribution of the land that's described in chapter three. There's boundaries given to different sections of the land that have now been conquered, uh, and chapter four verses forty one to forty three seems to be concluding that one of the last things in the book of Joshua, is the assignment of these cities of refuge. So that the same sequence, conquest, division of the land, establishment of cities of refuge, that's taken place over the course of chapters uh, two, basically two through four in Deuteronomy. That's a preview of the large-scale conquest, division of the land, and assignment of cities of refuge that'll take place in the next in the next book of the Bible. And we tend to read this part of Scripture very much on the border of entering into the land. But as you're saying, there is something of first fruits here. They're experiencing some degree of conquest of land that will become tribal territory. And so even though Moses will not enter the promised land proper, he is entering into this land and the establishment of these cities presents what's happening in the um, Moses teaching of the people, not just as preparatory for entering into the land, but as a sort of establishment in land that has already been conquered, that will be um, land of the people that provides a sort of um, pattern for the larger entry that will happen when they cross the Jordan later on in the book of Joshua. Yeah, that's that's helpful, Alistair. And uh, kind of fitting into that, I think, is the way in which the defeat of these two kings almost functions as like the defeat of Pharaoh. And so whereas it was said to the previous generations, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, um, now you get in, um, where is it, uh, The um, I think it was previous chapter, um, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. And um, uh, obviously, the, the, I think we discussed in a past episode, the, the way in which one of them uh, is seen in, in Pharaoh-like terms, the Lord strengthens or, or hardens his heart and, and, and so forth. And, and that seems to fit with what you're saying there. I think that, yeah, it's interesting to think about the Transjordan as part of the land, as Jeff said at the beginning, as Alistair has also reiterated, this is part of what will function in the land. So uh, in, the, in the system of cities of refuge, the city of refuge is a place for somebody who has uh, shed blood, but has not murdered. That's where they go, and they ha- they're confined in the city of refuge for a certain period of time. And the the cutoff of that confinement is the death of the high priest. So the death of the high priest is as a kind of it's a kind of cleansing act. It's a kind of cleansing death. Once the high priest dies, then the blood that the manslayer has shed is somehow purged, and he can go back out to the land, and he's not going to be hounded by the avenger of blood. As long as the high priest is alive, the high priest that was alive when the blood was shed, as long as that high priest is alive, he has to stay in confinement. If he goes out of the city of refuge, then the avenger blood can come after him. And the avenger blood is supposed to go after him. He's supposed to avenge that blood and cleanse the land by shedding the blood of the manslayer. 
But the high priest's death kind of substitutes for that. And given the place where these cities of refuge are, that the high priest's death applies not just, it's it, it's not confined to the uh, western side of the Jordan. Uh, that high priestly death cleanses the land on the other side too, because uh, the cities of refuge are functioning. So we have that uh, uh, implicitly that that whole territory is also included, which means it's all included uh, presumably in all the other rites and and uh, sacrifices that take place at the temple and the tabernacle. Even though it's on, even you have this water boundary, even though it's on the other side of the Jordan, it's still included in that territory. That's uh, sanctified land and is purged by the by the death of the high priest. So with with the uh, introduction in at the end of chapter four, then it moves into chapter five, which begins with Moses calling on the people to hear. Uh, this is the first of several places where you have this phrase, "Hear, O Israel, Shema, O Israel." Famously, that's going to come up in chapter six that we'll talk about in the next episode. But Moses calls on the people to hear, uh, and he's reminding them of the covenant that they made at Horeb. Uh, and he's emphasizing verse three, interestingly, that uh, the covenant that was made at Horeb at Sinai was not a covenant made with the ancestors of the people who are then alive. Uh, even though the people, many of the people who were present at Sinai died in the wilderness, and even though many of the people who are now alive when Moses is speaking uh, on the plains of Moab those people were born in the wilderness. So they didn't actually literally stand at Horeb and see these things. Uh, and yet Moses is speaking uh, in verse three, he speaks about them as being uh, not just included in the covenant, but it's as if it says, Yahweh did not make a covenant with our fathers. He made it with us, those who are alive here today. Uh, we could soften that by saying something like the Lord didn't make a covenant merely with our fathers, but also with us to, you know, the, the covenant has, uh, it uh, persists beyond the lifetimes of those who enter into the covenant, persists into future generations. But Moses puts it quite strikingly and uh, in saying that it's not done with the fathers, it, will, it was with us. The other thing that's kind of curious here is that Moses includes himself with those with whom the covenant was made. He's among those with whom the covenant was made. His covenant was made with our fathers. So he's treating the generation of the Exodus as a previous generation, even though obviously that's his own generation, he's quite old at this point, and uh, you know, uh, nearing 120 or so, uh, and he's uh, and yet he's thinking of the Exodus generation as the previous generation because he's still alive there on on the plains of Moab. Uh, he's among those uh, in the next generation, obviously among those who survived the wilderness. He won't fully survive the wilderness, but he's come to the edge of the edge of the land, uh, and that's the people the Lord has made a covenant with. Verse 4 makes it even more forceful. The Yahweh spoke with you face to face at the mountain. They weren't there. And yet there's something about, well, what is this? Is this about the current situation here where uh, Moses is summoning all Israel to hear these words? It's as if they're back at Mount Horeb. Today is the day when you're going to hear this. But this is still in the past tense in verse 4. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. That's rather striking. Um, and I guess what's commonly done with that is that, well, today is this day of decision for them. All you who are alive today, and then the Lord spoke with you face to face. There's this intergenerational nature of the covenant that that's that's good, not just for the ancestors and the fathers, but for the children as well. 
But yet still, verse four is, is just rather striking that he places them at the foot of the mountain to hear the voice of God. Yeah, it's it's striking in the in the kind of blurring of the generation or even the replacement of the the Exodus generation with this second generation. And also the the language of face to face. That's language that's typically not used for Israel's experience of Yahweh. Moses is the one who talks mouth to mouth with the Lord, as a number says. He's the one who goes up in the cloud. He's the one whose face glows and his face is horned because he's been in the presence of the glory. And usually that's not the way that the Lord's speaking to Israel is described, but here it's described as a face-to-face encounter. It makes me wonder if we uh, need to, uh, this has this has some implications for how we think about like witness, eyewitness, you know, even experience, because Moses is treating the people, people who did not actually, are not actually eyewitnesses, not literally eyewitnesses of Sinai, as if they were. Uh, they're learning about Sinai by by virtue of testimony, and yet uh, they're treated as if they were there. So there's, there seems to be some merging of the idea of eyewitness uh, experience and receiving a report by uh, faithful and uh, authoritative testimony through the generations. Those two things seem to be uh, almost interchangeable at this point. Yeah, I, I was thinking along similar lines, Peter, um, but thinking more about there seems to be this blending in this chapter um, between kind of what's heard and and what's seen somehow. Um, So I think we said in the last chapter that kind of uh, the issue there is the the primacy of of the word. You know, God reveals himself primarily, um, not via some image, but via his word, which, you know, obviously is going to have New Testament um, application. Um, And that's why the people weren't meant to make um, images, because they didn't, as a nation, see God. Certain individuals did, but as a whole, they didn't. And it seems to me that we, we've got more of that kind of, or, or some blending of seeing and hearing here. Um, I mean, the idea of speaking face-to-face obviously blends those two things anyway. But later, we're going to get that um, refrain in Chapter 5. Um, the people are going to say, who has heard God? And lived and we're kind of more used to that as who has seen the living god and 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 yet lived um and even back in exodus um exodus 20 where you get i guess an alternative um account of this you get the slightly jarring um we saw um the voice of of the lord and and we saw the thunders and and so on and uh sometimes that's softened to like we beheld or, or, or something like that but um it does feel like there's this kind of um, yeah that that blurring that the sense in which they're only hearing and yet they're never nevertheless kind of eyewitnesses in in some um, sense. It seems to want to carry across the directness of experience somehow. Yeah, and that puts me in mind to with some of our discussion about uh, images in previous episodes, uh, and uh, I mean chapter four. You didn't see any form on the mountain, therefore make no images to bow down to and to serve them. Rather, attend to the word. Um, and uh, in that in that discussion, we I, I pointed to First John, where the the sequence of thought is: we we saw, we touched, we heard the the word of life it was tangible, it was audible, it was visible. But the the exhortation that follows is not therefore. Uh, find some way to depict or 
you know, find some kind of image of this. Rather, it's you can have fellowship with the Father by having fellowship with us, and you have fellowship with us, the apostles, by attending to our word. So you have the same kind of sequence that there's a there is a a set of visual phenomena at Sinai, uh, and yet that's not uh, that's not what Israel clings to. Rather, the the thing that that makes Sinai continuous in the life of Israel is not the continuation of that scene or those visual phenomena, but rather the continuation of the word being taught through the generations. There's something about the role of Moses here as mediator that's also very prominent. Moses, with the original Sinai generation, um, had to act very much as a mediator because they were not prepared to directly interact with the Lord. He had to be a go-between. And there's maybe something of a contrast being drawn here between that generation and this generation, which is about to go into the land, that is not resistant to the word of the Lord in quite the same way as we see later on um, in this chapter. Um, oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. Um, and they're sent back to their tents, but Moses speaks with the Lord. And here maybe there's this movement into a new age where this generation is actually prepared to be receptive to the word of the Lord in a way that that former generation wasn't. And Moses' role as mediator um, is going to pass away. And in part, that's because something's being passed on to the next generation that enables them to operate without such a mediator. So Joshua isn't a mediator in the same way as Moses was. And that in part is a result of the openness of the people to receive the word of the Lord in, at least in contrast to the preceding generation. Uh, he, he, again, we have this reference to fire. I know Peter, you've, talked about this in the last episode and because it occurred in Deuteronomy 4 as well that the Lord's speaking uh, face to face out of the midst of the fire in verse 4 and then in also verse 5 you were afraid because of the fire and then in verse 22 uh, these words Yahweh spoke to all of your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire uh, and then also again down in verse 26 God speaking out of the mix, midst of the fire, as we have, we we saw him, we and we still lived. Uh, James talked about the oddness of that. I wonder, and and this this is bookends to the ten words to the uh, the Decalogue, the Law, of the Covenant. I'm wondering if Peter, you've had any more insights about this. I know you wrote something recently about this. This seems to be a prominent feature that Moses wants to call that their attention to this, this fire, uh, I guess the glory cloud of the divine presence, but it seems to be the origin of God's voice. Yeah. I, I don't know that I have any particular, anything particular to add what we talked about last time. The one, one thing that did occur to me, maybe, so maybe I guess I do have something to add. I'd contradict myself in the course of two seconds. The thing I was looking at um, just before we started recording was uh the passage you cited where uh, the people are fearful, fearful of God because he's speaking from the midst of the fire. They're fearful because they are flesh, verse 26 says, and flesh is going to be cons can be consumed in the fire. And almost 
feels almost like a sacrificial kind of motif going on there, flesh being consumed by the fire. So they're afraid, and the Lord actually commends their fear. He wishes that they would be as fearful all the time. And then you flip the page to chapter 6, and Moses is talking about teaching the people so that they can teach their sons, so their sons and their grandsons might fear the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 2. So, um, I mean, it's it's playing off of the the discussion we've just been having with we we have the the blending of the of the phenomenon of fire and the visual phenomena with the word, but the thing that the thing that continues the fear, the th- thing that's designed to continue the experience of Sinai, the fear of the fire, the fear of the gloom, is the teaching of the Torah. So it's almost like the Torah takes over that role, and uh, it becomes the fiery word, almost like a, a permanent presence of Sinai among the people. Uh, the tabernacle is a, is the permanent presence of Sinai among the people, but Torah is also. Uh, Torah has that same kind of quality in it. It teaches the people to fear and keeps that fear uh, going through the generations. Uh, the fear that the first experience of Sinai has continued through generations by the, by the teaching of Torah. But But there would also be a visual reminder of Sinai even for the people at the tabernacle and the temple, it, it, it surely, surely is significant that in Exodus 20, Exodus 19 and 20, you start with a mountain on fire, and then you have the 10 words. And then immediately after that, uh, there's instruction about making an altar of uncut stones, like a, like a mountain with a fire on top of it, which would uh, be a continual reminder uh, if you will, of the Lord's presence on Mount Sinai with them, uh, like a portable mountain, although altars aren't necessarily portable, but, but at least at least with them. So Mount Sinai would be with them. And it's hard it's hard to imagine that an Israelite hearing this about the fire and about the ten words wouldn't make an association with that event on Mount Sinai, and then also wouldn't think about Yahweh's glory cloud, fiery presence on the midst of the altar where animal sacrifices uh, ascend to. Now, they didn't hear any voice out of that, that symbolic representation of God's presence, but at the same time, it was kind of always there. And so there's a connection between the Mount Sinai fire, the ten words, and also the fire that would be burning on the altar in the tabernacle and temple precincts. I wonder if something else that's going on with um, fire here, I think I probably mentioned last time round that you have this kind of play between um, Moses's exposition of the law is um, be'er, so kind of, um, let's say, B and then uh, Aleph and then an R at the end. And to, to burn is very similar, but it's got an I in the middle rather than an Aleph. And then those same consonants become very important later in the um, book of Deuteronomy because it becomes the word for like to purge, you know, like, um, and you shall purge from among you is, is uviata. So it's, it's, it's exactly the same um, consonants. And it, it, it therefore just seems to kind of perpetuate that idea as as peter was saying of kind of perpetuating the fear of the lord you know out of reverence there to purge evil from their midst to to burn it out you know the central section of chapter five of course is a a restatement of the ten words that begins in verse six after this introduction about 
the people that are gathered on the at the board of the land are the people that the Lord spoke to and cut covenant with. These are the same ten words that you find in Exodus twenty, but they're they're different and in some details. I think the basic structure is the same. The ba- obviously the same the same commandments are here, but there are a couple of places where there's there distinctive distinctive emphases. We went through a, the ten words in detail some time ago in a in a podcast series, so I refer you to that if you want more detail. I'll just say, I'll just say this to set things up that uh, I concluded from my the work that I did for my little book on the ten words that uh, the the ten commandments are split up in terms of literary structure into a five plus five organization. You can say thematically there may be other ways to to uh, to organize it, but I think the in terms of literary structure, it's it's five commandments and five commandments. Uh, I say that because the first five words all contain the name Yahweh. I take the what's sometimes called the preface to the ten words in Deuteronomy five. It's verse six: "I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage." That's um, uh, I think that's part of the first word. I don't think that's a preface to the ten words. I think that's the opening to the first word. So the name Yahweh is found there. And then the name Yahweh is found in each one of the other first five words. Each one of the first five words also has some kind of explanation. The reason why you don't uh, worship images is because the Lord God is a jealous God. Uh, The reason why you don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain is because he won't leave unpunished those who take his name in vain. And then there's an elaborate rationale for the Sabbath and a, a rationale for honoring parents. And then you get to the sixth word, thou shalt not murder, uh, and you have a series of three three commandments that um, are just, just two two words in the Hebrew. Uh, don't have any explanation, no reference to Yahweh's name. In fact, Yahweh's name doesn't appear at all in the latter part of the 10 words, verses 17 through 21 in uh, Deuteronomy 5. These are very short commandments, no explanation given, no reference to the name of Yahweh. So whatever other things, there are plenty of different structures going on in the 10 words, but I think that's a, a straightforward literary structure that uh, helps us to see the the way that the two commandments they, they form this kind of two panel structure that um, with the five plus five arrangement. Peter, do you or anyone else for that matter um, know anything about the kind of history of the division of these commandments? A a into ten, like so, which ones you uh, ha- how exactly you count them, and B then into five and five. You know, do you know? how that's been done differently among Jewish and Christian and Catholic and Protestant kind of um, interpreters. Yeah. I, I can't recount a history, but there are, uh, there are different, there are different uh, ways of numbering that emerge pretty early. Uh, Origen had a certain way of uh, arranging the 10 words. Augustine gave a, a, a way of arranging the 10 words. You basically have two or three different arrangements. The five plus five arrangement is not very, not very widespread, because usually the the logic is seen to be uh, the commandments that have to do with our relationship to God, and then commandments have to do with relationship to uh, our neighbor. And the fifth word, honor your father and mother, is seen as part of that second set. But I think in literary terms, I think it belongs to the first set, which does raise questions about the the rationale for that arrangement. Um, but you know, one option is to take the first well, one one question is whether we have two separate commandments in verses seven and eight, seven through ten. Here is thou shalt have no other gods before me, a distinct commandment from thou shalt not make any images. 
Uh, and in some traditions, the Lutheran Lutheran tradition doesn't divide those two into two separate commandments. Instead, Lutherans uh, divide verse 21, the covenant commandment, into two, two separate commandments. So they usually are using Exodus 20, the version Exodus 20. Um, but uh, the the 10th word does ha- does repeat the verb, thou shalt not covet. In, in, in Exodus, it's the same verb, thou shalt not covet, and then thou shalt not covet again. And Lutherans will divide those two to make it 10. <laughs> uh, but they don't divide thou shalt have no other gods before me from the uh, from thou shalt uh, thou shalt make an image. So you, I mean, usually the you have the first four commandments. Often you have the first four commandments seen as the first table. The last six is the second table. Sometimes you have the first three. No other gods before me. No images. Don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's that's the first table that has to do our relationship to God. And then everything from the Sabbath to the end, those seven commandments are a separate set of, that's the second table that has to do with our relationship to our fellow men, to our neighbors. So yeah, uh, that's not really a history, but there's that's there's that variety. And I mean, in each case, they're looking at different standards to determine what belongs where. We know there are 10 words because Deuteronomy, among other places, says that there are 10 words. So trying to sort through, there are more than 10 imperatives, though. That's the problem. One of the problems. So trying to sort through where those 10 words divide out. Uh, and then once you've divided out the 10 words, how are they arranged internally? And uh, there are different kinds of criteria that are used. Uh, I'm using literary criteria. Often the criteria that's used is uh, has to do with the commandments concerning love for God and commandments concerning love for neighbor. I think one of the things that complicates some of the orders, particularly the Catholic order, where you have... Um, not coveting your neighbor's wife as the ninth, and then the tenth being house and slaves, etc. Um, it divides things up in um, Exodus in a very complicated way because in Exodus we have in chapter twenty, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and so you have commandment ten sandwiching commandment nine in um, the Catholic order in chapter 20 of Exodus. Now, while it might be possible to read Deuteronomy in that way, um, it makes all sorts of problems for the division in um, Exodus 20. And so I think those sorts of considerations between the two sets of commandments can help us in the division. Another thing I'd add is that as we go through the book of Deuteronomy, we'll see that the Ten Commandments are fleshed out within, and this is something um, James Jordan has argued in his book on covenant of, on the order in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy that in Deuteronomy 6 to 26 we have an expansion upon the principles of the Ten Commandments a sort of exposition of them and under the fifth commandment we have representatives of God's authority human representatives and so father and mother seen in that light it makes a lot more sense that they would be part of the so-called first table and so the literary um reasons for dividing these things according to that ordering fifth the first five commandments belonging to the first table which relates to the summary principle of loving the lord your god and the second with six to ten relating to loving your neighbor that makes sense on a literary basis but it also makes sense, I think, um, theologically, when we begin to see exactly how the fifth commandment is understood and unpacked within Deuteronomy itself. 
It's interesting that we're calling that the um, the Catholic way of doing it, this idea of sort of splitting the um, you shall not covet um, in, into two, um, because it isn't actually reflected in the Masoretic um, text. You've got a, a, a kind of, what would you call it, a mini paragraph break or something um, after you shall not covet your neighbour's um, wife. So it, it does seem to have some um, precedent elsewhere because it's, it's quite unusual to have one of these mini paragraph breaks midway uh, through a verse. So, yeah. Yeah, so in Deuteronomy, it would make more sense. The problem is we also have Exodus, which has you shall not covet your neighbor's house before um, the wife. And for that reason, it, um, according to the Catholic ordering, while it might look good in Deuteronomy, it causes problems in Exodus. Right. Yeah, so the, on, on that rendering, the, the Ninth and Tenth Commandments switch places between Exodus and Deuteronomy. And not just that, the ninth commandment is sandwiched between two parts of um, the tenth. Uh, James, you mentioned the Masoretic text. Um, Arnold's commentary has a fascinating comment on this. He has an excursus, by the way, on on dividing and numbering the Ten Commandments. But in that discursus, he also talks about the accents. And I don't know if any, any of you all have looked at that yet, but there's something fascinating here and that that um in the masoretic text there's a double uh accent uh that's throughout here which is not normal usually there's just uh, single accents and uh, lots of the words in this section have two accents uh, upper and a lower accent and in apparently in the jewish tradition the lower accent is uh like a, a is to alert you to note a, a musical system so the upper uh, accents of the text, the Decalogue, are you know are dividing things in verses, and the lower accents accents the text as verses. And so that's fascinating that this might have been these accent marks might have been musical notations uh, for chanting the text. Yeah, um, if if you if you work the work out the musical notations, I think it probably comes out with the Genevan Psalter tune for the ten words. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. That's that is the original Hebrew way of singing uh, the ten words. Exactly. Yeah, that's one of the Genevan jigs. It is. <laughs> Alistair mentioned the fact that the the tenth word here. Uh, let's stipulate we're calling it the tenth word. Uh, the command against coveting is uh, differently ordered in Deuteronomy six than what it is in in Exodus, and then the difference has to do with the, the placement of the wife rather than the house being the first thing that you should not covet, and then the wife included among those things uh, that are listed as part of the house. That's the implication of Exodus twenty. Uh, here, the wife is the first thing that should not be coveted, and then the house includes fields, servants, ox, donkey, anything that belongs to your neighbor. But the wife is is kind of uh, brought out from the house and treated treated separately. Jim Jordan noticed noted this uh, years ago at a Biblical Horizons conference, and it's it's stuck with me. It comes up comes to mind uh, fairly frequently. He pointed out that there's uh, there's frequently a double form to different covenant orders. Uh, that there there's a uh, an Adamic form, as it were, a masculine form, uh, and then there's a kind of death and resurrection, and then there's a feminine form. Where there's some some kind of more there's a more emphasis in the second in the second iteration on 
the inclusion of women and mothers and daughters and so on. Uh, one of the one of the places you can see this is in the the in the book of Numbers, where you have the census at the beginning of the book, which is a census of the men of military age are going to go in. You have a second census, but involved in that second census are uh, there's heads of households, but then they're also surrounding it are these references, a couple of references to the daughters of Zelophehad who are inheriting the land. So when Israel dies in the wilderness and comes back to life, there's uh, an accent on women who are heirs of the land along with along with the men that, you know, they don't, uh, Zelophehad died without sons and his daughters are going to inherit. That's the decision that's made. And here you have something similar. You have the 10 words that are given in the first iteration in uh, chapter, in Exodus 20, the wife is included among the members of the household. But then in Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 5, uh, the wife is, uh, uh, is uh, independent of the household. She's brought out and treated separately. Uh, which is, you know, that, again, that's a that's a, a a hint of that same kind of dynamic that you have a the second second time the law is given, you have this uh, emphasis that's given to the to the to the wife that you didn't have in the first. I wonder if we could see that as part of a more general pattern that things just seem to be slightly more expansive here. So the um, seventh day of rest here is not just for you, um, but for your sons, daughters, servants, etc. You know, so that your male servant and female servant may rest as as well as you. And uh, I wonder if we could kind of see those two things as, as part of a similar dynamic. Yeah, the the, the fourth word in, in Exodus 20 also includes a list of people who should be given rest on the Sabbath, but this one is longer. It includes ox, donkey, cattle, three different kinds of animals, which is interesting. And then it reiterates at the end of uh, Deuteronomy 5.14, it reiterates the fact that uh, the male and female servant are going to rest as well as you, and I think that's a that's a, a profound statement in the context of Deuteronomy because the gift of rest is so much bound up with the gift of the land. Uh, Israel goes into the land, so the Lord will give them rest in the land. Once they have rest in the land, He's going to select a place where He's going to put His name. Rest in the land is is the blessing that the Lord is bringing Israel to, and so when it says that the male and female servant are going to rest, it's not just that they're getting a day off. But that day off is a sign of their participation in the rest, the gift of rest that's been given to Israel. So, yeah, you had a list in, in Exodus 20, but it's more definitely more expanded. I think that the, the fact that you have uh, the male and female servants reiterated is also a, a hint of what's going lying ahead in the more expanded version of the expanded discussion of the, of the fourth word uh, later on in Deuteronomy, where there's this accent on relief of... Uh, relief of the poor, this accent on open-handedness and generosity, on uh, freeing slaves and and uh, giving the land rest. Uh, and so there's that that interest in Sabbath being extended to the to, to those who are in need is uh, is is hinted at here and, and foreshadowed here in the ten words. There's also a way perhaps that we can see in the addition of other the expansion of the livestock, a sort of intensification of the commandments concerning the male and female servant. Um, I think of the way that Christ used this in Luke 13, where he makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. Um, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey? Explicitly, I think, alluding to, or implicitly alluding to Deuteronomy and its account of the the Ten Commandments. 
untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And so the addition of further elements strengthens the previous elements by almost having a, a further hedge that um, expands the principle by which we can look back at those earlier elements and say, well, if it's extending to these further elements, the ox and the donkey, then how much stronger should our defense of these core figures within it be? And in terms of application for today, the the, the points you guys just made is important. Sabbath really wasn't given or couldn't even be properly observed individually or in isolation. This is a communal thing. This is this is something that happens. Um, it has to be enacted. It's it's uh, in your gate. It's going to be part of the legislation uh, within your gates. Say verse uh, fourteen, and there's this emphasis on fathers and parents and masters uh, and owners of ox and donkey and livestock of giving rest of uh, granting rest. Uh, not just, and somebody just mentioned this, I think, not just uh, uh, individuals taking a break and time off, but of actually bringing relief to uh, people. And then, of course, grounded now in Deuteronomy in the fact that they were slaves in the land of Egypt um, and all that that implied, now they're liberated. And so they're supposed to liberate others uh, and not just their their fellow Israelites, but also the sojourners that live in their community and the animals as well. There's there's something about the liberation of creation going on here as well. I think that needs to be kept in mind in modern applications of the Sabbath principle. I'm not saying that we still have the Sabbath. We don't. But this principle about giving our family members, giving our employees uh providing them a time of rest so that they won't be enslaved to us and won't be perpetually working is part of the essence of uh, the Sabbath law. So people are, and and if people who are under us and animals who are under us uh, aren't released from that uh, through law, through legislation uh, and through an enforcement of some sort of Sabbath principle, then you're back in a in a pharaoh-like uh, tyranny where any corporation or any business owner or any father or mother can end up tyrannizing their family and their people without giving them proper rest. And I think that's one of the that's I think that's one of the main things that comes out of uh, our understanding and application today of the Sabbath principle. Yeah, and that's going to be borne out by the way that uh, the rest of Deuteronomy talks about the Sabbath as kind of the the core of uh, Israel's social legislation, you could say. Uh, they, they've been given Sabbath, and so their whole life is to be conformed to, to the Sabbath. Just a general comment, perhaps, on, on the way in which this um, text, this presentation of the uh, Ten Words, expands on Exodus's version of it. It's easy, or at least it's possible, um, to kind of take the differences between, note some differences between these two texts, and then start to see the 
the idea of God's word as this very fluid concept that could kind of quite freely be added to and, and so on as as things develop and evolve. And I think there are kind of a, a couple of cautions against going too far down that um, uh, line of thinking. I mean, what, one is that the whole of Deuteronomy is framed explicitly as this exposition, this kind of um, making plain of the law and, and of um, what God has, has said. And so it, it's not um, uh, presented to us in Scripture as this kind of verbatim account of what God said. But, I mean, the other thing I think to note is that these kind of expansions that Moses um, has, they're, they're they're kind of caveated in, in certain senses. So like, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, comma, as the Lord your God commanded you. And it it's kind of clear that as the Lord your God commanded you is, is an addition, if, if if you like. And and the additions that Moses is that Moses makes, they're not punctuated by, you know, saith the Lord your God, or they're not first person said. Um I, the Lord, your God, um, tell you, you should do no work. So uh, I, I guess I just wanted to make the general point that while these are I- expansions, that they're not presented as if to give this idea that w- what the Lord has said can just be treated in this very fluid way. They, they are marked out for us as, as such. We've already talked about uh, some of the material that follows the 10 words here in chapter five, but uh, I wanted to raise a question that uh, kind of puzzled me. After uh, Moses recounts the 10 words, then he reminds the people that they uh, they had heard this and they came and, and asked Moses to be the one to receive the word and to deliver it to them because they're afraid of the fire and they're afraid of uh, hearing the Lord's voice that they would die. But the way that they say it is just odd. Um, verse 24 says, Yahweh our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. We've heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet he lives. So what they've learned from that experience is that you can hear the voice of God from the fire and yet survive that. And then verse 25 seems immediately to contradict that. Now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we shall die. But uh, I thought they just learned that they can hear the voice of the Lord from the fire and not die. So um, I wasn't able to uh, figure out the logic there. I can I can find ways to kind of fudge it, but I, none of them were really satisfying. Did you have any thoughts on on that? Well, I mean, this may be more fudge. Um, you, you can be the um, the judge, you know. But I wonder if um, what they have seen is that God can speak with man, that man particularly being Moses. Um, I'm not sure if that works, but I mean. I think it was probably a couple of weeks ago that Jeff mentioned the way in which it's not entirely clear whether they've seen God. It, it kind of, on the one hand, says that they have seen God, and on the other hand, says that they haven't. And I think the issue there is that the they are different. So the people who have seen God are Moses and the elders who go up the mountain, and the people kind of see God speaking, as it were. They see something going on, but it's all enshrouded in, 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 in smoke. And I, I wonder if, yeah, if what they've seen is God interacting with Moses and Moses living, um, but the, and that 
is why then they want Moses to act as this priest for them um, later on, but God not speak to them directly. Don't know. Well, one thing is that this life and death uh, motif is pretty prominent in Deuteronomy, um, so that uh, the way to live, the way to continue to live in God's presence is to uh, hear the Torah and to live it out, to obey it, to to fear God. Um, so it may be here that uh, why should we die? This great fire will consume us. We hear the voice of the Lord God anymore. We shall die. Well, the voice now becomes the Torah, and the Torah is what they hear and obey and continue to live and live. That doesn't entirely solve the problem, but the fact that they are concerned about their death and they fear Yahweh's wrath and anger, uh, why should we die, <clears throat> um, is maybe for that generation, uh, the generation that Moses speaks to, a uh, a reminder that this is you know serious business. I mean, that's somewhat obvious, but it seems to me like this is the theme you get all through Deuteronomy is life or death is set before you. Uh, live, <clears throat> don't die. Uh, live by being loyal to Yahweh and following his commandments. Yeah, uh, James, I really like uh, your comments, I, and I don't think that's a fudge at all. I think that uh... It certainly answers the question we posed earlier. I don't know if we came to that conclusion before, but yeah, the the fact that Moses, the elders, and the priests see some form doesn't mean that the people did. I think that's that's a way to resolve it. And looking at the Hebrew here in uh, verse twenty four, uh, what uh, what's said is that uh, we've seen today that God speaks with Ha'adam, and He lives. So the syntax suggests, yeah, that there's a it's a singular man the man uh, that the Lord speaks with, and he does not die. Moses can withstand the fire, and so send him up into the fire, and he can be the one to receive it. That that makes all kinds of sense. It also makes sense of the theme that we've uh, I've mentioned a couple of times. I picked up from Dennis Olson's book on the death of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. This is one of the places, he says that the death of Moses is hinted at everywhere, at every section of Deuteronomy. And this is one place where he sees it in in this section, uh, it doesn't explicitly refer to Moses' death, but it does have Moses going into a place of potential death uh, on behalf of the people. So uh, we've seen that you can live, Moses, in the midst of the fire, receiving the words of uh, receiving the words of God. So go on our behalf to receive the words, and we'll receive them, we'll obey them, but we're afraid to go in ourselves. So there's a Again, almost a substitutionary idea here with Moses being the one to enter the furnace for the sake of Israel. It's also as a helpful way of thinking about Paul's use of this in um, 2 Corinthians 3, where Moses becomes the sort of example in the Old Covenant of the believer who turns to the Lord. And when he turns to the Lord, the veil is removed, and yet the rest of the people there is a veil remaining over them between them and the revelation. And so Moses becomes here exemplary of the person who can see the Lord. And so in some sense, he's an eschatological sign of what will be when the people's hearts are prepared for such a vision. Yeah, just picking up on some of those things, it does seem that there's this very interesting 
paradox about what's going on in that Moses kind of has to die. He has to pass away with that old generation because that's what the Lord has said. And yet, in some senses, he he needs to live. They want him to um, live in order to be this kind of go-between. And it almost seems then to build on that slightly odd um, uh, interposition of the cities of refuge because um, they were kind of temporary um, and someone the guilty people, sort of guilty people, could shelter there um, until the high priest um, died and then they would be released. And in, in a sense, Moses now is their high priest, you know, and, and in a sense, he, he's he's got to die and it, it just sort of um, at which point they will be released and be able to enter the land. And, and it just seems to capture this uh, paradox, you know, that the death of a high priest is, is powerful. And so you want a high priest who's going to die. And yet at the same time, you want a high priest who's going to live because you want for him to mediate um, between uh, you and the Lord. And um, obviously, you know, so much of this pe- is then picked up in uh, Hebrews, you know, in, in Jesus, you have, uh, in a Mel, uh, Melchizedekian priest, you you have that tension resolved. You you have a priest who is going to um, die and and yet live forever and and eternally make intercession. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.